Quick, tell me everything you know about Jackie Robinson. No cheating. All right, let me guess. Jackie Robinson broke baseball's color line when he joined the Brooklyn Dodgers, becoming the first black player in the major leagues. And uh, Chadwick Boseman played him in that movie. Did I get close? And to be clear, that's exactly what I knew about Jackie Robinson. Like, I would have been proud of myself if I'd pulled out the Dodgers at trivia night. And there's people like this all throughout our history classes. Someone who is known for doing a single incredible thing, they get a line in the textbook, right? If they're lucky, maybe they get one of those little pop-out sections with their picture that no kid ever reads because as soon as you put it in a box away from the main text, they think it's not required. But as hopefully you're realizing as you listen to this podcast, every single one of those figures is way more interesting than you ever imagined. I had this experience myself when I was invited to explore the new exhibit at the National Archives called All-American, The Power of Sports. Now, I was an athlete growing up and I actually took many classes in undergrad about the connection between sports and society. I'm like their prime audience for an exhibit like this. So imagine my excitement when I came across a single historical document that changed my entire perception of Jackie Robinson. Like, y'all, I jumped down a rabbit hole so fast. This is why the National Archives is so important. Like, the archives have so many of the untold stories from history that we haven't learned. I mean, not to brag, but like, I know a lot about history. I got two degrees and taught it for over a decade, and the archives still showed me so many documents and narratives that were totally brand new information to me. So today's episode is all about Jackie Robinson, or fair play and justice. This is Anti-Social Studies. I'm Emily Glankler. Settle in and let me take you out to a ball game. Act 1. The Early Life of American Baseball Alright, why is baseball America's national pastime? Like other popular sports were invented in the United States, basketball for one, but the development of baseball kind of almost perfectly parallels the development of an American national identity. The sport originated in the 1700s during the late colonial period when young men started playing games that would come to be recognized as baseball with informal rules and their own equipment. After the dual successes, kind of, of the Revolution and the War of 1812, as the young United States was establishing itself as a new nation by building roads, canals, sectioning off all of Latin America as its backyard, yada, 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 amateur baseball clubs were also being formed throughout the middle of the 1800s. By the Civil War era, as early industrialization and economic standardization were sweeping the East Coast, so were semi-professional baseball clubs. But it's not really until the post-Civil War era, that gloriously chaotic Gilded Age, that professional baseball establishes itself as America's pastime. The professionalization of the sport coincided with electrification of cities, a growing upper middle class with time and money on their hands, bicycles that allowed young men especially to move around cities more easily and catch a game. Baseball provided an activity that allowed big business owners to take in the spectacle from the grandstands while appearing to be just like the common men below them. And almost as soon as professional baseball came to be, so did the gentleman's agreement that clarified that baseball would not be for black Americans. It's interesting because there were instances of other non-white players participating in professional baseball, like Jim Thorpe, the indigenous American who won two gold medals in the 1912 Olympics, played for the New York Giants, the Cincinnati Reds, and the Boston Braves. And just note for a second the irony of a real-life indigenous athlete being represented by a racial stereotype meant to dehumanize them in the Cincinnati Reds. Prince Oana of Hawaii played for the Phillies and Detroit Tigers in the 1930s and 40s, but these were still exceptions to the overwhelmingly all-white major leagues, but still, it is interesting to note that the MLB was willing to let indigenous Americans, including native Hawaiians in the league, 
but not black and Hispanic players. To be clear, just because black men were not allowed in the major leagues, of course, didn't mean black men didn't play baseball. They formed their own Negro Leagues that were incredibly competitive. Like, often it's argued that the players in the Negro Leagues were way better than those in the MLB, so much so that when the major leagues did integrate, it actually drained the Negro Leagues of a lot of their talent. Now, the Negro Leagues are an incredibly complex and interesting part of American sports history that I honestly know very little about. And luckily, the National Archives is actually about to host a program in partnership with the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum next spring. So if you're in the D.C. area, you should try to check it out live at the National Archives Theater. Or for most of us, you can subscribe to the Archives Foundation YouTube channel to watch it as a live stream. They also have tons of other live programs saved on their channel that you can go watch. Like they just hosted a program about Jim Thorpe with Anita Thorpe, his granddaughter, and the author of a new biography about him called Path Lit by Lightning. They also have tons of conversations about history, like from the little known Black Wall Street to their own efforts to digitize Native American treaties. So if you're a teacher, it's really a great way to show students how history is still being created. Like we are still looking back, sifting through artifacts and figuring out what happened. And programs like this are designed to connect history from the National Archives holdings with the public. Like, they have over 17 billion, that's billion with a B, records, many of which illuminate issues from our past that we're still wrestling with today. Okay, back to baseball and its significance as America's national pastime. So as with many things related to civil rights, in this case, the integration of Major League Baseball, the big turning point came with the outbreak of World War II. So at this point, For some background viewing, I'd really just encourage you to pause and go watch A League of Their Own, both the 1992 original film with a resplendent Gina Davis and a Madonna-Rosie O'Donnell duo that will honestly never be topped, and also the new Amazon Prime series. Pause and I'll wait. All right, so by now we all know that women's leagues filled some of the gaps left behind when most of the young baseball-age men went off to fight. But just to be clear, like, baseball was so important that Major League Baseball continued throughout the war. President Roosevelt famously issued a statement specifically saying that it would be, quote, best for our country to keep baseball going. And not only did Major League Baseball continue, but the sport in general became a way to prove your American identity, even at a time when your own country had put you and your family behind barbed wire. Baseball became a cherished activity even within Japanese-American internment camps. Remember from a past episode, 120,000 Japanese-Americans were imprisoned in the wake of the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and these families were often given 48 hours to get their affairs in order before they were forcefully moved, taking only what they could carry to the camps. But when they needed to organize activities to keep their spirits up, baseball was an obvious choice. George Omachi, a prisoner who later became an MLB scout, said that, quote, without baseball, camp life would have been miserable. Eventually, seven of the camps developed teams, and some of them were even allowed to travel to play each other, at their own expense, by the way. And eventually, some of these teams played against their own guards or even white clubs from nearby communities. The National Archives All-American Exhibit has some amazing photos on display of the Japanese baseball camp leagues. I do want to pause for a quick tangent on a tangent because I don't want us to misinterpret this. Like Japanese American internment camps were not summer camps. They were barbed wire prison camps, often located in some of the worst terrain and climate in the American West. American citizens were treated as potential enemies strictly because of their ethnicity. Many families lost everything. Their homes, their storefronts were often sold off and taken over by white families while they were gone. So the question is, if these men were being treated as foreign enemies in their own country, why would they play America's national pastime while imprisoned? 
Well, for one, baseball had been popular in Japan since the 1870s. If you remember from my world history season, Japan in the 1870s was in the midst of its Meiji Restoration, this whirlwind modernization program pushed by the new government to promote industrialization and national pride. The Meiji government specifically chose baseball as a sport that could help them develop a new national identity, a mix of traditional Japanese ideals of self-restraint and harmony amongst many players, while also participating in the new, organized competitiveness of industrial nations. Similar to Negro Leagues, Japanese Americans formed their own baseball leagues along the West Coast, so baseball has been a part of the Japanese American experience basically as long as it has been for white Americans. But there's something else interesting about sports specifically as a way to assimilate and even excel in a society that is otherwise treating you as less than. For non-white Americans who want to prove, quote unquote, their place in American society, participating in the national culture can be a good way to do that. One quote featured in the National Archives exhibit is from a prisoner who described playing baseball in the internment camps as, quote, like being wrapped in the American flag. It was a way to integrate yourself into your country, even when your country wasn't wanting you to be integrated. And sometimes this is done by choice, like people of color forming their own baseball leagues. Other times it's done by force, right? Most of our decorated indigenous American athletes came out of Indian boarding schools. And sports, especially basketball in this case, were seen as a way to teach discipline and, quote, Americanize indigenous kids. But there is something special about sports as a meritocracy. Like, it's hard to argue when a person is just clearly faster, stronger, or more skilled. And we've had this myth in white American society for centuries that people of color, especially black men, are just inherently stronger and faster. White men can't jump, right? This is false. It stems from centuries of convincing white Americans to fear black men and see them as only useful for physical labor. But it does kind of make sense then that white Americans were slightly more comfortable seeing some men of color in the fields of athletics than other areas of life. Okay, Back to baseball and Jackie Robinson. So even though professional sports were mostly segregated until the mid-20th century, younger leagues sometimes permitted kids of color to join in. Jackie Robinson competed in integrated teams throughout most of his childhood in California. And even if official leagues didn't allow it, good athletes tend to just find each other and want to compete. So while young black boys often weren't allowed in the best schools, the elite country clubs, and other funnels into careers of wealth and power, they could a little bit more easily pick up a basketball or join a pickup baseball game. And on the field, they had an almost true level playing field to showcase their greatness. And the irony of all of this, of course, is that support for a great athlete of color was accepted in the international arena, right? U.S. citizens would rally around athletes in a sense of nationalistic pride and symbols of American greatness. Like in the 1936 Berlin Olympics, the U.S. celebrated Jesse Owens' four gold medals in Nazi Germany. But when he returned home, he had to take up jobs as a gas station attendant and a janitor to make ends meet. Interestingly, Jesse Owens eventually partnered with Abe Saperstein to found the West Coast Negro Baseball League. Saperstein himself was a Jewish immigrant who was also facing discrimination, and he would go on to found the Harlem Globetrotters, the most famous example of black athletes turning to a more performative version of a sport to entertain audiences and make a living while excluded from more legitimate leagues. 
In the world of boxing, Joe Lewis became the real-life Rocky Balboa going up against German boxer Max Schmeling and the entire Nazi regime. Like Joseph Goebbels, the German minister of propaganda, used Schmeling's defeat of Joe Lewis in the 1936 Olympics as, quote, proof of their white supremacist agenda. But in a rematch dramatically hosted at Yankee Stadium, Joe Lewis defeated Schmeling and was celebrated across the United States as a symbol of American exceptionalism against Nazi racism. So by the mid-20th century, there was an abundance of impressive athletes of color, but they still weren't getting the opportunity to compete at the highest professional levels with their white peers. So how does Jackie Robinson fit into all of this? Act two, young Jackie. Jack Roosevelt Robinson was born on January 31st, 1919. His middle name, Roosevelt, was in honor of... Teddy Roosevelt, our guy, who had actually just passed away a few weeks before Jackie Robinson was born. He was the youngest of five kids, and his dad left the family fairly early on, and it was just his mom. He played sports all throughout childhood and through high school, junior college, and university. He was a four-sport athlete, football, basketball, track, and baseball. Ironically, baseball, at least according to Jackie, was his worst sport. And this is probably partly because he had an older brother who was also an accomplished athlete. Mac Robinson ran track and earned the silver medal in the 200-meter dash at the 1936 Olympic Games in Berlin. Who did Jackie Robinson's older brother lose to? Oh, right, Jesse Owens. Besides sports, though, another clear through line of Jackie's life was a sense of justice and willingness to fight for what's right. And maybe it's because he was seeing firsthand the extreme hypocrisy of America's relationship with black men. Like one brother, a track star, was getting paraded around the Berlin Olympics in the face of Nazi Germany. Meanwhile, just a few years later, another brother, Edgar, is getting beaten up by police over seats at a rose parade and then denied treatment at the hospital because of the color of his skin. In another incident, Jackie was arrested after getting into an argument with police who were detaining his friend, another black man. Being a black person in California was incredibly confusing. Like, for example, Pasadena Junior College was actually fairly integrated, but then other parts of the city were really hostile to black people. Jackie actually once said he preferred living in Atlanta, deep in the Jim Crow South, because, quote, in Atlanta, I know what I can do, and in Pasadena, I never knew. Jackie went on to UCLA, where he became the school's first athlete of any color to win varsity letters in four sports. The UCLA football team was the most integrated team in the country, and yet Jackie was still only one of four black players. Side note, two of the other black football players that played with him were Kenny Washington, who would go on to be the first black player to sign with the NFL after World War II, and Woody Strode, who went on to win the Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor in Spartacus. Jackie had to leave UCLA before graduating because of financial hardship, but he took up a job as the assistant athletic director of the National Youth Administration. Again, this is the late 1930s, so this is one of those massive New Deal programs to create jobs. And look at that. It worked, at least for Jackie. He eventually ended up in Honolulu playing football for a semi-professional team, the Honolulu Bears, and he was back playing in Los Angeles, again football, when World War II broke out. Okay, so this is where this mysterious document that I discovered on display right now at the National Archives comes in. And that does kind of make it sound like I was personally sifting through the archives and found some never-before-seen artifact, which is not true. But it was a document that I had never seen before, and it illuminated a part of Jackie Robinson's story that I didn't know about. 
And also, like, if I had unfettered access to the National Archives, y'all know that I would reenact national treasure and steal the Declaration of Independence. Like, obviously. So what was this document? Well, it was a letter from young Lieutenant Robinson to an aide of the Secretary of War named Truman Gibson. And I want to do something a little bit different. I Let us play historians for a second. Let me just read to you excerpts from this document, and then we'll break it down afterwards, like historians do. Quote, I am sorry to bother you again, but under the circumstances, there seems to be no alternative. On or about the 7th of July, I was at Camp Hood, Texas, visiting the Colored Officers Club, and upon leaving, I took a shuttle bus from the club to the Central Station. As I moved to the rear, I noticed one of the officers' wife and sat down beside her. The lady is very fair, and to many people look to be white. It is evident the driver seemed to resent my talking to her, and he told me to move to the rear. He didn't ask the lady to move, so I refused. When I did, he threatened to make trouble for me when we reached the bus station. Upon reaching the bus station, a white lady tells me that she is going to press charges against me. She said she heard the driver tell me to move to the rear. I told her I didn't care if she pressed charges against me, and she went away angrily. That is the last that was said to the lady, and the next thing I hear is I've cursed a white lady out. I feel now that I should have, but I've never cursed one out, and I certainly didn't start with her. I want to know just how far I should go with the case. What I mean is, should I appeal to the NAACP and the Negro press? I don't want any unfavorable publicity for myself or the army, but I believe in fair play and I feel I have to let someone in on the case. If I write the NAACP, I hope to get statements from all the witnesses because a broad-minded person can see how the people framed me. Sir, as I said, I don't mind trouble, but I do believe in fair play and justice. I feel that I'm being taken in this case, and I will tell people about it unless the trial is fair. Let me hear from you so I will know what steps to take. Jack Robinson. Okay, before we dive into this document specifically, it's just a good reminder of the importance of primary sources. Like, secondary sources, like this podcast, are great, and they're often easier to understand, they're more condensed, but history and critical thinking rely on us being willing to dive into primary sources like this letter, especially in history classrooms. If you're a teacher and you're looking for some primary source resources, check out the new National Archives Civics Initiative. Civics for all of us, U.S., us, promotes civic literacy and engagement through student programs, webinars, and teacher workshops. And past topics have included teaching the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and Native American treaties. All of their educational resources support the National Archives' mission of not just preserving our nation's documents for posterity, but making them accessible to all so that we can learn from them right now. Okay, I read this letter and had so many questions. For one, how does Jackie Robinson know this man high up in the Secretary of War's office? Well, it turns out he knew him through none other than Joe Lewis, the boxer. The two had become friendly in the sports world, and when Jackie Robinson was trying to get into officer candidate school, he appealed to Joe, who was way more well-known for help. Basically, almost no black men were ever made officers. In 1940, there were literally five black officers in the entire U.S. Army. When Joe Lewis found out about this, he used his own celebrity to get the issue in front of Truman Gibson, the man the letter is addressed to. Are you following? So Gibson was a black man who had worked his way up to be an aide in the Secretary of War's office. And it was through these two black men's influence, Joe Lewis the boxer and Truman Gibson the aide in the Secretary of War's office, that a new crop of young black soldiers were admitted into officer candidate school, including Jackie Robinson in 1943. Okay, so now we know how he knew Truman Gibson, who this letter is addressed to, but what's this issue with the bus? Like, what happened on the bus that day? 
Now, there had been a few instances already of Robinson pushing back against racist attitudes within the military. He reportedly got into an argument with a white major over black soldiers' lack of access to the post exchange, basically like the store that's on the base. He also refused to play football for the military post because they wouldn't allow him to also play baseball on its all-white team, which this is really interesting to me, and I don't really have a clear answer to, but like, for some reason, football seemed to be fine enough for black players to join, but something about baseball was like too precious, too classically American to allow an integrated team. I don't know. In this instance, Robinson did concede that his commanding officer could order him to play football, but he could not be ordered to play it well. Touché. But none of these were behind his eventual court-martial, which is what happened after this incident on the bus. So, in 1944, Robinson was reassigned to Camp Hood in a rural area between Austin and Waco, Texas. As you can imagine, this was a terrible place for a black soldier, even a black officer, to be assigned. The post was completely segregated, and the neighboring towns of Killeen and Temple were especially resistant to black soldiers in their communities. Because of this, one of the biggest inconveniences facing black soldiers was getting transportation to the post, because they had to use civilian bus lines to get there. One day in 1944, when he was returning to Camp Hood, he sat next to a fellow officer's wife. She was also black, but she was light-skinned. The bus driver told Jackie that he had to move to the back of the bus, and Lieutenant Robinson refused. They argued the entire way to the post, and they were eventually joined by a small crowd, including the bus dispatcher, Beverly Younger, who referred to Robinson with the N-word. Military police, white civilians, and soldiers all joined the chaos, but no one outranked Lieutenant Robinson. He agreed to go to police headquarters to straighten out the situation, but he was met with more hatred inside. One military police officer excitedly asked if they had the, quote, N-word lieutenant. At this point, Fairly, Jackie had had enough. He threatened to, quote, break into anyone else who used the N-word. It was at this point that he was told that all of his transgressions were enough to have him court-martialed. Eventually, according to 13 depositions, all by white observers, Jackie had been, quote, disrespectful toward a superior officer and refused to obey a direct command. All for not moving on a civilian bus. So this was the point at which Robinson wrote the letter to Gibson, the black aide in front of Joe Lewis, who'd helped him get into officer school. And I want to pause for a moment to point out a few things. First, the events described in the letter are actually so commonplace that like most other black men would have probably just moved to the back of the bus or been court-martialed without much else to do about it. Jackie's experience was unfortunately not that unique, but... The fact that he was a rising sports star was unique. The AG's office in Washington, when they heard about the case, referred to him as, quote, the Negro football star alumnus of UCLA of excellent family and reputation. There's a reason why historically marginalized groups look to celebrities from within their community, regardless of how they got fame, to speak on their behalf. For decades, the most famous Black Americans were typically athletes and entertainers, the two fields within society where kind of pure talent rises to the top without needing as much access to fancy schools or connections. So there's been a privilege and a burden on Black celebrities to not only sing, dance, play football, whatever, but to also become activists and spokespeople for the Black experience. Black people were so easily squashed or ignored by the system that if you had any sort of foothold, like you were a pretty good college football player in a mostly white school, you often became the face of a bigger movement simply because it was a little bit harder for white society to ignore you. And this, to me, is the real Jackie Robinson story. His experience facing discrimination and mistreatment, unfortunately, was not that unique. He actually isn't even going to be the best black baseball player when he breaks the color line. 
but he expertly uses the spotlight he's been given very effectively to carve out space for more black men to follow. For example, just two days after Robinson's bus run-in, the War Department issued an army-wide order clarifying that no discrimination on the basis of race was allowed in regard to use of recreational facilities, theaters, and transportation. Was this a coincidence? Maybe, but whether it's Joe Lewis asking that more black men get into officer school or Jackie Robinson resisting mistreatment on a bus, it seems clear that the government paid more attention when a slightly famous black man pointed out the racism. Okay, so what happened after the letter? Gibson himself annotated the letter, I assume before passing it on up the chain of command. He wrote, quote, this man is the well-known athlete. Follow the case carefully. See what I mean? Gibson responded personally, advising that Jackie should not actively seek out publicity. He was worried it would fan the flames and make things worse for him. Another point too, historically marginalized groups have so little leeway. They get so few chances to plead their case in court or to the general public that they have to be 10 times more careful with how they do it. In this instance, a white person giving an interview about how they were mistreated would be perfectly acceptable. Readers would focus on the mistreatment and be glad the issue was brought to their attention. But a black man making the same case in black newspapers all of a sudden could turn on him, right? Men are dying overseas and he's complaining about a bus seat? Why is he so angry? No wonder people on the bus got upset. It sounds like he was being aggressive, right? We all see this happen. So eventually the news did reach the Black Papers, which made the military nervous. Remember, this is happening during World War II. The U.S. military is out fighting against Nazi and Japanese racist imperialism abroad. This is also when Black men back home are questioning whether they should be fighting for a military that's oppressing them. They eventually settle on the double V, right? Let's fight for two victories, a victory against racism abroad and at home. And FDR has already ordered that military industries shouldn't discriminate on the basis of race. The last thing the military wants right now is the president and commander-in-chief breathing down their necks about discrimination inside the military. Jackie Robinson goes to trial, relying on a defense attorney appointed by the army. The NAACP said this was a bad idea, although I'm honestly not sure why they didn't just provide him with a lawyer. Maybe it's because it was a military trial. The white Texan attorney, Captain William A. Klein, defended Robinson really well. He pointed out inconsistencies in the witness accounts, and he highlighted the use of racist slurs against Lieutenant Robinson. In the end, Jackie was exonerated, which shouldn't be a surprising outcome, considering he didn't do anything even close to being worthy of a court-martial to begin with, but, you know, it is kind of surprising. At this point, understandably, Robinson and the U.S. Army were somewhat eager to go their separate ways. He had already been classified as limited duty because of a football injury, plus the Army now saw him as a potentially problematic troublemaker, so it's fairly easy for him to argue he would just better serve in the civilian sector at this point. While his former battalion, the 761st Tank Battalion from Camp Hood, shipped out to eventually find themselves in the worst parts of the Battle of the Bulge, Robinson was honorably discharged. And then we never heard of Jackie Robinson again. Act 3. Jackie the Baseball Star After the war, Jackie Robinson took a job as the athletic director at an HBCU in Austin. Oh, hey, Austin. That's now called Houston Tillotson University. Genuinely, I had no idea Jackie Robinson had so many connections to Central Texas between Fort Hood and now this. He then quickly got an offer to play pro baseball in the Negro League for the Kansas City Monarchs. During his time in the Negro League, he attended a few major league tryouts, mostly teams that just like wanted to appear as if they were considering letting a black player on their team, but had no intention of ever doing so. 
I'm talking about you, Boston Red Sox. But eventually, Branch Rickey, president and general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers, took a real interest. And now, this part is fairly famous. Like, there's a whole Chadwick Boseman movie about it. So I'm going to just skim past it. But basically, Rickey was not just looking for a good baseball player. In fact, there were better players in the Negro League, some of whom were mad that Jackie Robinson was the first selected. Larry Doby, a black player who joined the American League the same year as Jackie Robinson, actually said that he thought it was one of the reasons why Josh Gibson, generally accepted as the best player in the Negro League, died so young. Quote, he was heartbroken. But Ricky was not just looking for a good player. He was looking for someone who could withstand the racist attacks he knew would come. And very famously, Robinson asked if he was, quote, looking for a Negro who was afraid to fight back. And Ricky replied that he needed a player, quote, with guts enough not to fight back. In this, Robinson had had plenty of time and practice keeping his composure. By the way, he was already in his late 20s at this point, fairly old for a player just joining the league. So in 1947, at the age of 28, Jackie Robinson played his first game with the Brooklyn Dodgers, officially breaking the color line that had been in place since the late 1800s. Throughout that first season, he got support from others in similar positions. Jewish baseball star Hank Greenberg whispered words of encouragement after colliding with Robinson at first base during a game. Larry Doby, the other black man who joined just after Robinson, spoke on the phone with him throughout that whole first season. Jackie Robinson eventually played 10 seasons, all with the Dodgers, including six World Series and six All-Star games. And like, I know nothing about baseball, but let's just say he was good. He was really good. And which is insane, considering that this was basically his fourth sport. You can go watch the Ken Burns documentary all about baseball. What I want to talk about is what he was doing off the field. And to explain why, I want to read a quote from his wife, Rachel Robinson. Quote, To the average man in the average American community, Jackie Robinson was just what the sports pages said he was, no more, no less. He was the first Negro to play baseball in the major leagues. Everybody knew that. In remembering him, I tend to de-emphasize him as a ball player and emphasize him as an informal civil rights leader. That's the part that drops out, that people forget. Bookended by his own personal struggle against racism in the military and then his involvement in the civil rights movement, his decade on the Dodgers is honestly the least interesting thing about him, in my opinion. And of course, that's not entirely true, right? His stoicism, perseverance, and ability to turn the other cheek against racism on the baseball field had an enormous impact on the general public's attitude toward black players in the league. Again, historically marginalized people have to be better than the white majority. But throughout the 1950s, anything that could chip away at white attitudes was a win. Whether it was black music on the radio, or even just black sounding music, hey Elvis, or Jackie Robinson on the baseball field. As Dr. King said one time to Jackie, quote, you will never know how easy you made my job through what you went through on the baseball field. Jackie Robinson was essentially showcasing peaceful, nonviolent resistance every time he played a game and endured hate from the crowd. But it wasn't just that. Most textbooks praise his performance and poise on the field and then stop there. What many don't realize is that he didn't just shut up and play baseball. After he retired, he became an active participant in the civil rights movement. For one, he was openly critical of the MLB's lack of black leadership. He wanted more black managers and coaches in the league. But it also went beyond baseball. In 1959, Robinson entered Greenville Airport's whites-only waiting room, and he refused to leave, and he later gave an NAACP speech in Greenville urging, quote, complete freedom and encouraging all black citizens to vote and protest their second-class citizenship. 
1,000 people marched to the airport and successfully desegregated it years before the famous Birmingham protests and the Civil Rights Act. Jackie served as the chair of the NAACP's Freedom Fund drive, and he even used some of his own money to found the Freedom National Bank, a Black-owned commercial bank in Harlem. Toward the end of his life, in 1970, he established the Jackie Robinson Construction Company to build housing for low-income families. He also worked with Dr. King during the 1963 March on Washington. He got involved in national politics, especially the 1960 presidential election. He actually criticized Senator Nixon for not doing more to get Dr. King out of a Georgia jail because of a lunch counter demonstration. But he also called out Kennedy for being insincere, like making it sound like he would support civil rights while still courting white Southern Democrats. I mean, it's fair. Jackie Robinson was a Republican. He endorsed Nixon in 1960. And again, a moment for complexity, right? On all of the various votes for civil rights and voting rights throughout this era, the voting split is way less about your political party and way more about which state you're from. Trolls on the internet will often remind me that the majority of Republicans voted for civil rights while many Democrats voted against it. And that isn't a gotcha moment. Like, it's a fact. Yeah. What they don't realize is that our parties didn't shift into the ideologically opposed teams we have today until after civil rights. In fact, the same time Jackie Robinson moved away from the Republican Party in 1968 was the moment that Republicans were beginning to court white voters who were angry about desegregation, feminism, and other moral issues facing the country. In 1964, Barry Goldwater had signaled this shift in strategy to turn the party of Lincoln into what one reporter called, quote, the white man's party. And Jackie Robinson warned Americans about politicians like Goldwater in 1963 when he wrote in his syndicated column, quote, the danger of the Republican Party being taken over by the lily-whitest conservatives is more serious than many people realize. Jackie Robinson was worried about black voters being forced essentially into a single party. It would give them less flexibility and bargaining power if Democrats came to see them as an assured vote because Republicans were no longer an option. And to be honest, that's kind of exactly what's happened. But still, there were other black activists who were upset that Jackie Robinson wasn't actively campaigning for Democrats throughout the 1960s. Malcolm X called Jackie an Uncle Tom, which is an insult referring to an enslaved character in Uncle Tom's cabin who sympathized with the white enslavers. Side note, but something similar was happening at around the same time to Sammy Davis Jr., and there's a really great revisionist history podcast episode all about his support of Nixon called The Hug Heard Round the World. But Jackie was unique. He saw that value in staying open-minded, not tying himself to one party without question. And this came in handy considering he had the ear of essentially every U.S. president for almost 20 years. From 1956 to his death in 1972, he wrote every sitting U.S. president with his own opinions and criticisms about their work on civil rights. For example, here's a letter he wrote in response to the Little Rock Nine to Eisenhower saying, quote, when you said we must have patience, I felt like standing up and saying, oh no, not again. I respectfully remind you, sir, that we have been the most patient of all people. 17 million Negroes cannot do as you suggest and wait for the hearts of men to change. We want to enjoy now the rights that we feel we are entitled to as Americans. You unwittingly crush the spirit of freedom in Negroes by constantly urging forbearance and give hope to those pro-segregation leaders like Governor Faubus of Arkansas who would take from us even those freedoms we now enjoy. Think about what's happening here. Jackie is telling President Eisenhower directly how his message is, quote, unwittingly crushing the spirit of Black Americans. He's giving the president his own interpretation of the political situation in Arkansas and advising him to take a more active approach in desegregating the South. This is not a silent and stoic baseball player. This is a skilled political operative. 
He sent a telegram encouraging Eisenhower to veto the watered-down 1957 Civil Rights Bill, saying, quote, We disagree that half-loaf is better than none. We've waited this long for a bill with meaning. We can wait a little longer. He wrote to President Kennedy and reminded him of his own, quote, vigorous opposition to his election as president. This whole letter is full of shade. Like he's saying he would be, quote, keeping a wandering eye on Kennedy because, quote, what you do or do not in the next four years could have a serious effect on my children's future. Jackie ends the letter saying, quote, I will continue to hope and pray for your aggressive leadership, but will not refuse to criticize if the feeling persists that civil rights is not on the agenda. In the wake of the murder of Medgar Evers, Jackie Robinson telegrammed President Kennedy to implore him to use his power as president to protect Dr. King as he traveled to speak at the funeral. As he put it, Kennedy should, quote, utilize every federal facility to protect a man sorely needed for this era. For to millions, Martin King symbolizes the bearing forward of the torch for freedom so savagely wrested from the dying grip of Medgar Evers. America needs and the world cannot afford to lose him to the whims of murderous maniacs. That's political poetry. One part of the civil rights movement where Jackie was often at odds with other activists was Vietnam. In a letter to LBJ, Robinson expresses concern that anti-war protests will overshadow the civil rights movement, and he hopes that Johnson will continue to support the movement even as black leaders, including Dr. King, criticize the Vietnam War. This was the source of Jackie's criticism of fellow athlete Muhammad Ali as well. Jackie Robinson worried that black heroes criticizing the war was hurting the morale of black soldiers who were over there fighting. And strategically, he really worried that the anti-war movement would turn away white supporters of civil rights, which to be clear, it did happen to some extent. At the end of his life, Jackie was actively critical of Nixon, the president he had originally campaigned for in 1960. Now in 72, he was clear in his warning that the president needed to do more for black Americans. We'll talk about it more in the next episode, but by this point, Nixon's team had been actively using a new strategy, nicknamed the Southern Strategy. It was clearly defined as playing on racist attitudes against protests, crime, and the quote, inner cities to bring white Southern Democrats to the Republican Party. And it was working. But Jackie warned Nixon's team about ignoring black voters, quote, Black America has asked so little, but if you can't see the anger that comes from rejection, you are treading a dangerous course. We older Blacks, unfortunately, were willing to wait. Today's young Blacks are ready to explode. I hope you will listen to the cries of the Black youth. We cannot afford additional conflict. Jackie Robinson died just a few months later in 1972 of a heart attack. Now, I've focused my attention in this episode on Jackie Robinson because clearly I had plenty to say about him, but the exhibit at the National Archives is about so much more. It's called All American, The Power of Sports, and it's running at the archives through January 7th, 2024. That means you have over a year to make your way up to DC to check it out. Like any teachers out there planning a DC trip with students, you should definitely include this in your itinerary. They have over 75 original records, documents, photographs, films, and more on display, and many of them have rarely been seen publicly. The goal of the exhibit is to explore the athlete's voice and the power of sports to promote American progress and ideals. And I just checked out the digital exhibit and found multiple documents and moments in U.S. history that I was entirely unaware of. Like, seriously, I had like three different ideas of what this podcast could be about. But I hope that the portrait I've painted for you is far more complex than the blurb you read, or, you know, maybe didn't read, about Jackie Robinson in your textbook. He was a gifted athlete trying to outshine his older brother who raced just behind Jesse Owens in Nazi Germany. He was a football star turned officer during World War II. He refused to move to the back of the bus a decade before Rosa Parks. He was a decent baseball player who turned out to be the perfect person to cross the color line. 
He was a civil rights activist for over 30 years, often using his name recognition to boost the message of Dr. King and important legislation. He put his money where his mouth was and created companies that would serve the black community. He was never afraid to speak truth to power and openly criticize the most powerful men in the country. His life was sports and activism wrapped up in one. From his early days at school all the way to his time as a retired professional baseball player, he dedicated his life to, in his own words, fair play and justice. Thanks so much for listening, and a special thank you to the National Archives Foundation for sponsoring this episode. If you are a teacher, seriously, you should check out their educator resources. They already have an entire lesson plan analyzing other documents related to Jackie Robinson's civil rights advocacy. I've included the link in the show notes, or you can just go to archives.gov education lessons and just search all their lesson plans. They're all primary source-based, and they span from 1754 up to the present. Go explore the archives and just let me know what cool stuff you find. As always, if you want to support this podcast even more than just listening to it, please share this episode with friends and go join my Patreon at patreon.com slash antisocialstudies. Thanks for listening.